Matthew chapter 17. And as I mentioned in my prayer, I mean, it's really, I never, ever, ever planned this this way. I, may, maybe I did, and I forgot at some point in the past, but I certainly didn't now. And, and uh, the, way that, the way that this past Thursday's Bible study and, and this Sunday's sermon, and even last Sunday's sermon to some extent, like just overlap and feed each other is, is, is amazing to me. The Lord just helps us time those things, and I, I can't help but take it and wonder, like, is the Lord really trying to get our attention with something specific here, you know? Um, and obviously, we've been studying the minor prophets on Thursday nights for a long time, and we just came to our last one. We studied Malachi chapter 4 last Thursday night. And uh, that's the last chapter of the the Old Testament, the last chapter that immediately precedes the the Gospel of Matthew. But it just so happens that what Malachi chapter 4 says is made reference to in Matthew chapter 17 directly. And I didn't time that out or plan that out. It just worked out that way. But as we read what is said to Jesus and how he responds to this, we'll be we'll be looking back at Malachi as well as a couple of other places, even looking ahead into Revelation, because in this passage of Scripture, there are not only implications for understanding how God has worked in the past, but, but there are implications in what Jesus says here to, to the future. And not, I don't mean just the eternal future in heaven, but the future here on earth, right? And sometimes we, we, we push... We just think in terms of life here and then heaven, right? It's like we're going to live here, and when we die, we go to heaven. But there's this entire prophetic plan. You know that, going to church here, because we've studied through Revelation. We've studied the prophets. You've studied all those things. You've read them for yourself. You know that there's a great deal more that the Lord is going to bring forth here on earth before, before he comes. We are, as Christians, looking for Christ to come. Right? Isn't that, what, isn't that what the angels said to the disciples as he was ascending into heaven? Why are you standing here looking into heaven? This very same Jesus, just as you see him go, so he's going to come again. Right? And so he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit came. What we call the church age, if you will, began the age of the new covenant. And we've been preaching the gospel to the world ever since us doing our part holding our end of it in our generation, in our place right now. But with all of that said, you know, they were still left with that picture of Jesus sailing into the sky and with the echo of those angelic voices in their ears saying, just like you've seen him go, so he's going to come again. Every Jew was familiar from the scribes, from their rabbis, from their familiarity with the scriptures, that this this amazing saying, Elijah must come first. What does that mean? That's what comes up here. Listen to this. I have to give you the background. You know that you know that they just came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And while they were there, I mean, amazingly, Peter, James, J- 
John with Jesus. Jesus was transfigured. Moses and Elijah appeared to them. And God spoke to them and said, This is my beloved son in whom I will please listen to him. And then when they were left, they were coming down from the mountain and Jesus told them, Tell no one until the Son of Man is risen to dead. Tell no one of this vision. Then you get to verse 10. And in verse 10, it says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Now that's, that's an interesting little anecdote. I, I, I left that off of the consideration of the first uh, nine verses of the passage because in Matthew and Mark's account that is included, but in Luke's account that is not included. And I believe this to be a bit of a, there's a bit of separation thematically, I think, contextually between Jesus and Peter and James and John going up and coming down from the mountain and this because when he was on the mountain, Jesus was with Peter and James and John. And here in verse 10, we have who? We have his disciples now talking to him. So now the converse, so you get the idea. This all started with this conversation where Jesus asked them what? Who do men say that I am? Some of them said, you're one of the prophets. Some of them said this. Some of them said that. Then Jesus got to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, right? And Jesus said, you're blessed because man didn't tell you that. God revealed that to you. And then right after that, there's the whole bit where Jesus, this is new to them. Jesus says to them, you know, I'm about to suffer and I'm going to die and all this. And that's the whole scene where Peter takes Jesus aside, begins to rebuke him. That's never going to happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of man and not the things of God, right? And then you got that verse that said, assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then six days after that, they go up onto the Mount of Transfiguration and all that happens. But I point all that out because what verse 10 does, listen carefully, is important to know. You read the Bible, you want to hook things up right. You saw in verse 9, they're coming down from the mountain. So that would be Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Verse 10 says, and the disciples ask them. So now you're back, I think, with the whole group. And I think that thematically, at least, what happens is when they come down from the mountain, Peter, James, John, and the rest of the disciples pick up right where they left off in their previous discussion. They have just had their minds blown by the fact that they have come to realize for the first time with certainty. Surely they thought it before this, but they understand with certainty now. This is the Messiah talking to us. This is, this is what everyone's been looking for. And there were other people that came to their society and claimed to be the Messiah. 
There were, you know that, right? There, there was messianic fervor. That's why there were so many Roman soldiers in Jerusalem because every now and then one of these messianic figures would stand up and either he would claim to be the Messiah or the people would push him forward as possibly being the Messiah and there would be uprisings and there'd be rebellions and this is where Barabbas most likely got committed murder and got arrested and ended up getting released in place of Jesus at his crucifixion, right? And so they're realizing these Galilean fishermen and the gang, this is the real thing in front of us here. This is the Messiah and God himself showed us. You understand? And then Peter, James, and John go with Jesus and they disappear for a bit up into this mountain. And they have this experience that they're told, don't you tell, Jesus tells them, don't you tell anyone until after I've risen from the dead. Then the conversation picks up. And thematically, what happens in verse 10 fits perfectly with this new realization that Jesus is the Messiah. They have a question because they have been going to the synagogue for their whole life. They have been learning the word of God their whole lives, depending on how faithful they were in their families and everything else. They have no doubt heard at some point in their life the scrolls of the prophets opened up and read, and at some point have heard a rabbi, a scribe, a Pharisee, maybe even a Sadducee, an Essene, maybe a Levite. Somewhere along the way, they heard someone remind them, but wait, Malachi says, Elijah must come first. And so in their heads, as Jews who have been learning the word of God in the synagogues their whole life, what they're wondering is this, how can this be the Messiah when we've been taught our whole lives that Elijah comes first? This Maybe they have some doubts. How can this possibly be the Messiah? Where, where is Elijah? I thought Elijah was supposed to come first. I thought to myself as I was thinking about this that it's very possible that the scribes and Pharisees and the religious leaders who were against Jesus actually used what Malachi said to deny that Jesus was the Messiah. You understand? Because Whenever anyone made a claim to the Messiah, if they didn't have a clear presentation of the fact that Elijah came first, then they could say, listen, he can't be the Messiah because Elijah hasn't come yet. Listen, Orthodox Jews today are still looking for Elijah to come to precede the coming of Messiah. Why? Because Malachi said so. And that was our Bible study on Thursday night. See how this all, this all just times up and, and all fit together for us. Now, the Lord, in having Matthew write this down, did preachers for all future centuries, right even to today's day, a great favor. You, ever, you, you, ever, you ever get up and you listen to preachers and so frequently and commonly they have three-point outlines, right? Well, here you go. Paul wrote in outlines, it seems, right? Paul wrote like in bulleted lists and points and stuff like that. You have a very clear three-point outline right in the middle of this passage, right? What do you see? It's very important. The disciples asked him and saying, why do the scribes say what? That Elijah must come first. 
Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And there's your, there's your three points right there, right? Number one, the question, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And then it's really the comparison of points two and three that make this absolutely fascinating. But we're not here just to fascinate ourselves. I find it fascinating, and that's nothing wrong with that. But mostly to be informed. Can I just put this here? Christians ought to be informed about what is coming. The Lord did not leave us blind. He did not leave us without witness. When he came the first time, nobody recognized him because nobody was ready, because nobody cared or believed what he had said through the scriptures. The world is, listen, listen, listen. The world is currently being set up for the same thing. Nobody is ready for him to come because nobody reads, nobody listens, nobody pays attention, nobody is informed concerning what he said. Not you, not, not, not you. Not you. You're about to get some messianic 411 today. But then what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? You're going to get right. You're going to make sure you're right with God. You're going to make sure you're walking humbly before him. You're going to make sure you're ready for the fact that how you live, everything you say, everything you do, everything you apply yourself to, we almost all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. See, Apostle Paul said, in all things we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He says that's Christians. right? You're going to be humble before him. You're going to meditate on his gospel. You're going to meditate on his love. You're going to meditate on the truth of his grace and his love and his mercy for you. And you're going to let that amaze you and be a wonder to you and inspire you and lift you and encourage you. You're going to read and study and meditate, meditate, meditate on his word. You're going to pray and you're going to pray and you're going to pray. That's what you're going to do with the knowledge of all of this. That's what it ought to do. It's not just to make us theologians. It's not just to make us people who can have intelligent conversations, though those are both really good things, right? but it's to inspire you to draw near to God. It's to inspire you to, it's inspire, to inspire you to not have such a tight grip on this life and the things of this world. You were not just put here to pursue riches. You were not just put here to hang out with your friends. You were not just put here to have fun. We were put here to abide in Christ, and be his ambassadors and his representation and his mouthpiece to the world. And you're going to listen to this about Elijah coming and you're going to let it inspire you to be close to the Lord because God wants to use you. God wants to use you to spread the word to the world. What's needed is for us to say, yes, Lord. Now listen. So three points. The first one, the first one is simply the question, why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? The second point is that Jesus says Elijah is coming first. And then immediately after that, he says, Elijah has come already. And as I started to say, the really fascinating, interesting thing 
is to compare those second two statements because Jesus says in one statement, he says, Elijah is coming, which is future tense and looks ahead, and then says, but, in verse 12, Elijah has come already. And at least with regards to the tense of those two statements, they seem contradictory. Elijah is coming, and Elijah has already come. I want to say to you right now, both of those statements are true. Elijah is coming, and Elijah, or not and, let's use Jesus' word, but Elijah has already come. So let's take the first of these, which is maybe the easiest and the quickest to address, which is they ask this question, and I've kind of given you already like some theories why they ask this question. Why? Why do the scribes say this? What were the scribes? The scribes were like, they were students and teachers. Think of the scribes as being like religious lawyers, Pharisees in training. They were, the, they were you see the word scribe, you, you think of the word, you think of writers, right? Scribe is where we get the word scribble from. So these are people that, these are people that spend their time studying, writing in the Word of God. So the scribes are, I mean, you have the rabbis who knew the Scriptures and taught. You have the Pharisees who were a ruling party who enforced the religious code in the nation. But you have these people, the scribes. They're the real scholars. They're the professional scholars, right? Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first is the question. And of course, we found our answer, and I've mentioned it already, but I want you to look at it. You don't have to go back very many pages to go to Malachi chapter 4. Let's go back there. Malachi chapter 4, I'm not going to give you all of this for time's sake, but it started in verse 1 by saying, the day is coming. That's the day of the Lord. It's coming like a, burning like an oven. And verse 1 tells us, the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. The day which is coming shall burn them up. Right? And then verse 2 tells us, but to you who fear my name the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. So when the day of the Lord comes, there's going to be great judgment and there's going to be a very powerful discerning between who? The proud and the humble. The proud, the proud who are identified by their wickedness. Did you know that? Raise your hand if you've never done anything wicked in your life. Anybody? Yeah, that's good. You're honest. Or maybe you've never done anything wicked in your life and you're afraid to admit it. No. Now listen. Everyone does wickedly, but if you notice in this passage of Scripture, it is what? Listen, listen. It is the proud who are associated with their wickedness. That is to say, the proud retain the accountability for their wickedness. 
because, what am I going to say next? His grace is with the humble, right? He what? He resists the proud, but his grace is with the humble. So in the next verse, it says, but to you who fear my name, who are they? Those are the ones who recognize who God is. They recognize what he's done. They recognize that he is right. They recognize that they are wrong. They recognize that they have done. See, the difference between the proud and the, and the humble is not what they've done because we've all sinned. That's clear, right? But the proud are people who sin and for whatever reason, they don't care. Or maybe they don't acknowledge that they've sinned. And so the proud are identified by their sin because they still carry it and bear the accountability for it. But the humble, those who fear God, what does it say about them? It says, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you think of the sun rising. And here there are other places in scripture where the sun rises and you associate it with the burning things up and scorching things. Like in the parable of the sower, the sun scorches the ones that are not on the, on the deep ground, the ones that are on the rocky soil. Or you think of Psalm 19 that talks about the sun. God has set a tabernacle in the heaven for it. Nothing's hidden from its fervent heat. Here, the, the warmth of the sun is being described as something good. We live in New Jersey. We like to go to the beach in the summer. You love to watch the sunrise, don't you? I mean, we live on the East Coast, so we're more of a sunrise state than we are a sunset state. Though you can go down way south in New Jersey, and you, you, know, you can go to Cape May or whatever, and you can watch the sunset and all that stuff. I mean, you can watch the sunset here, too. But we're beachgoers, right? You, you like, do you like to? Am I the only one that likes it? No, no one's like shaking your head. Affirm, I know it's like almost December, and you probably think, you're looking outside, and you're like, why is he talking about this? But you like that, right? If you're down the shore, maybe you stay down there, or you go down there really early, and you can watch the sunrise over the ocean, and what is it? It's, it's, it's generally pleasant, right? Listen, the son of the sun, it's not S-O-N, it's S-U-N. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you hear Isaiah's words, right? That by his stripes we're healed. Yeah? We're healed from our sin. The proud retain their sin. And listen, they will be burnt up like stubble. They will be burnt up. When the Lord returns, because they've done wickedly. Look at them, verse 1. They will leave them neither root nor branch. No twigs laying around, no roots left in the ground. Complete consumption burned up. But to you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. You're going to go out and grow like fat. You're going to grow fat like stall-fed calves. At first I read that and I was a little disappointed because, you know, you know, we struggle with being fat now. And I was like, you know, I don't, I, don't know if, I, I don't know if I was thinking about that being part of like my eternal reward from the Lord, right? Kind of check that one off the bucket list already. But, but, but you know, no, but you understand, it's, I'm, I'm being a little funny. You can hang up, you're handled, good. So you have, so you have what? But, but like a stall-fed, a stall-fed calf would be deprived of what an animal would naturally want, which would be to run and dance and graze. And that's what he says it's going to be like. It's like going to be a release. It's going to be a freedom. And the floor you're going to walk on is the ashes of the wicked. Now, verse 3 says, you'll trample the wicked. On the day that I do this. The day is coming when God is going to do this. He's going to bring destruction to the proud and he's going to bring his grace to the humble. 
What day is that? It's the day of the Lord. But there are some things that come first. And here's, here's what plays into what Here's what plays into what the disciples asked Jesus. Why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? Well, I mean, it's like the last thing that God spoke through a prophet before the, the events came that ushered in the age of the new covenant. I mean, Malachi is chronologically, thematically everything, the last thing that God spoke the last thing that God said before he signed off for 400 years was, remember the law of Moses and I will send you Elijah the prophet. Wow. Remember the law of Moses and I will send you Elijah the prophet. Just last week in church, Jesus went up onto the mountain and that's who appeared to him. Isn't that incredible? Moses and Elijah. Well, he says, remember the law of Moses because in Malachi's day, 400 years before Jesus came, they were still living in the old covenant. It wasn't the glory of what it was under Solomon, maybe the temple and all that, but they were expected to like continue to the sacrifices, the temple worship and everything else because that's what held them in place until the grace of the new covenant was going to come through Jesus. But he says what? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Who's the next, who's the next voice? See who's astute here. After Malachi signs off, who's the next voice that you hear from heaven? Begins with a G. Gabriel. Gabriel, right? Gabriel, very good. You're all right. God, listen, God, God begins with a G too. And like, generally speaking, if you guess God, it's like, if, it's like back in the day, if you played Trivial Pursuit, if you didn't know the answer to the question, you guessed Ronald Reagan. I'm from the 80s, so that's like how it was. You guessed Ronald Reagan and you had a pretty good chance you were going to be right, you know? So, but, but you guess, if you're in the Bible and you guess God, you have a pretty good chance that you're going to be right. But actually, Gabriel speaks, right? And what does he do when he speaks? Who does he appear to? Well, Mary, but before he appears to Mary, he speaks to a lady named Elizabeth. Well, actually, he speaks to Elizabeth's husband. What's his name? Zacharias. Yeah. And he tells him, your wife's going to have a baby, and you're going to call him John. And John, he's John the Baptist. And you know what that is? That's the beginning of the fulfillment of this, Right? The scribes in Jesus' day don't know this. Turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? Because Malachi said so. Because the scriptures say so. That's the easy answer. But the reason they, the real reason I think that I suspect they say Elijah comes first is because they don't want to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Right? And this is weighing heavily on these disciples because they had just revealed to them that Jesus is the Messiah. But wait a minute. What about this whole Malachi comes first business? So now you have the Apostle John, all right, who wrote for us 
And he wrote for us concerning John the Baptist. So the, even though this is the gospel of John, the John he's writing about here is not himself. It's John the Baptist. John chapter 1, look at verse 19. This is the testimony of John. Not himself, as I said, but John the Baptist. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? What's the question? Are you Elijah? Because that's what they were expecting, that Elijah would come first. So some of them thought maybe John the Baptist was the Messiah, but are you Elijah? And look what he said, I am not. So he said, I'm not Elijah, which is true. He's not Elijah. He's John. But this so fascinatingly comes back into play in a minute. Are you the prophet? What's that a reference to? That's, oh, well, hold on one second. You're not wrong, but it's, and when it comes out of their mouths, it's a reference to something Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18. Moses said in the law in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet like me will arise, right? This is why there was a Jewish tradition even back then that said not only would Elijah come first, but many of them also believed Moses would come again. Because if you remember at the end of Moses' story, when he was buried, God hid his body, right? And so they believed Moses would also come again. So they asked, are you the prophet? Because they, some of them, not all of them, but some of them took that reference in Deuteronomy 18 to be a reference that Moses would be coming back. Are you the prophet? He says, no. Then they said to him, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And so he says what? And he quotes from Isaiah. He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And we're told these things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptized. And then you're told immediately the next day is when Jesus showed up and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you have John the Baptist coming and saying that he is the fulfillment of uh, the prophecy concerning the... um, Well, he is the forerunner. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40 that I am the one who is going to go before and make straight the paths for the Lord even as he says, no, I'm not Elijah. No, I'm not the prophet. And no, I'm not the Messiah. This is fascinating. This is, the question they asked was, why do they say that that, that Elijah comes first? So the answer is, because the prophet said so, and probably because, to some extent, even by this point, they knew that John the Baptist had like denied that he was Elijah. So they obviously completely put out of their minds the possibility that John the Baptist was Elijah, because he said that he wasn't. 
The answer to the meaning of all this then comes in the questions that Jesus asks. I leave that hanging a little bit because... Well, go, go back to Matthew and let me explain. I want you to see how Jesus answers this question. And I didn't want to get bogged down too much with spending time on them asking the question because you have the basic answer to the question. The reason the scribes say that Elijah must come first is because Malachi said that he would, right? And, they were, and we know that they were looking for Elijah to come because they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he said no. But now look at this. They asked him, when, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Here's Jesus' answer, twofold. Points two and three for us. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished, which is a reference to the fact that they took him. He was arrested because he spoke out against the adultery of one of the Herods. He was held in prison and then at a drunken birthday party, said to the young daughter of the woman that he was in the adultous relationship with, Herod, I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And she had been prepped to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And they beheaded him and brought the head on a platter. So when Jesus said they did to him whatever they wished, he's referring to the fact that they held him in very low esteem. The Bible tells us that Herod himself was quite interested in what John the Baptist had to say, but for the sake of his dinner guests, went through with all of this, his party guests. You know, I mean, I mean you never want to interrupt a good party, you know? You, you know, even, even, even if it means like saving a righteous man's life. But... In this particular case, you can see the, the complete disregard that they had for who John the Baptist might be. And what Jesus goes on to say here is, they're going to do to me, just like they did to him. But before we go into all that, just examine these two things that he says. Elijah is coming first. Yes, they're right. He acknowledges that what the scribes say are right. Of course he would, because it's biblical, right? I mean, you're not going to have Jesus stand there and say, no, it's not true, when Malachi, writing on behalf of the Lord, said it. Elijah comes first. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. How is it possible that Elijah is coming, but he's already come? Which is basically what Jesus is saying. How, is, how could Jesus stand there after John the Baptist had already died, and say, Elijah is coming, but he's come already. That's really the question. I read a couple of the other English translations. The King James Version says, truly shall come first concerning Elijah. The New Living Translation, which I like to look at sometimes, acknowledges also Elijah is coming first. The New International Version, if you like to read that, says, to be sure, Elijah comes. So Elijah's coming first. We have to go back and examine 
the passage of Scripture again in Malachi. I know I'm bouncing you around a little bit, but take a look at this. Keep your finger in Matthew because we're coming right back to it. Ready? Verse 5, he said, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet. This is Malachi. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. See? That's, that's not really a description of Christ's first coming, is it? No. The great and dreadful day of the Lord is a reference to the second coming of the Messiah. When Malachi and the other minor prophets and the other prophets wrote, they often looked ahead to the day of the Lord as one thing, not delineating in those days yet the mystery which we know as the gospel and all of the facts concerning the coming of Messiah that it would be twofold, that he was going to come first, as Isaiah said, and he was going to, uh, uh, the Lord was going to lay on him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. So he was going to come and he was going to die. But he was also going to come in what was called the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And as it said in the beginning of the chapter, he's going to destroy all of the proud. And yet he's going to save all of the humble, the believers, the ones who fear his name. Right? That hasn't come yet. And it says in verse 6, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. It's a picture of repentance. The turning, the turning is the key part. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. That is to say, when this Elijah comes, he's going to preach, and people are going to turn in humility, and this mutually shared humility that fathers and sons, and sons and fathers, will have will be a humble repentance before the Lord and as it says at the end of the passage lest I come and strike the earth with a curse the only thing that turns the curse away is humility and faith humility repentance and faith in the gospel is the only thing that staves off the curse upon men Elijah is going to come and do this before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What is he talking about? And keep in mind, here's the cogent point, the relevant point. Jesus said, he's coming. To be sure, he's coming. This is after John the Baptist was already gone from the scene. He does go on to say, but he's come already, a reference to John the Baptist. But before we get to that, this Elijah is coming. What's he talking about? Look at Matthew 17 again. I want to show you something. In verse 28 of chapter 16, remember that verse? That was the verse that I said seems like it attached itself better to the chapter that followed it. And actually in the Gospel of Mark, it is. In the, it's all in one chapter with the transfiguration story. What does he say? There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see what? The Son of Man, what? Coming in His kingdom. Right? And over in verse 9 of chapter 17, He says, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So the Mount of Transfiguration, do this now, do some, to do some biblical exposition with me here. The Mount of Transfiguration is a vision of what? 
Yes. It's a vision of Jesus, the Son of Man, coming in His kingdom. Right? Now, this is where it gets really fascinating and interesting and maybe gets into some texts that you've not thought about a lot or not thought about for a long time. They are shown, Peter, James, and John, a vision of Christ coming in his kingdom. And in this vision of Christ coming in his kingdom, who do they see? They see Moses and Elijah. And we have a prophecy that actually says that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which is the day that ushers in the kingdom of the Messiah, Elijah comes first. I will send you Elijah. And Elijah's going to straighten everything out. He's going to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children to stave off the curse. He's going to preach. This is where it gets a little tricky, but absolutely fascinating. Ready? Turn to Revelation chapter 11. I want you to be up on this. We've studied verse by verse through Revelation in this church. There are so many preachers down through the ages who understand this, including some very modern ones, good ones, ones that I love, John MacArthur, some other people, who, while they'll acknowledge that you can't state this dogmatically because the names Moses and Elijah do not appear, I want you to listen to this passage of Scripture and listen to this in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses. Now, so there are two witnesses who are coming. I should contextualize Revelation 11 for you first. As happens in the book of Revelation... What you see in Revelation chapter 1 is an appearance of Jesus to the Apostle John. In Revelation chapters 2, listen, this is important to get this. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven letters written to the seven churches, right? And those are to be taken by churches then and churches now as instruction for us. It's Jesus' own message to the churches of the church age. Then, when you get into the ensuing chapters, chapters 4 four and 5, you see a vision of heaven. And in this vision of heaven, you see the Lamb. And you see a scroll that no one can open. And the only one who's worthy to open it is Jesus himself, the Lamb. And in the scene, when Jesus opens the scroll, you get what transpires in chapters 6 through chapter 19 which is a passing down onto the earth of judgments, three layers of judgments. Judgments that first come in the sequential opening of seven scrolls. Right? The seventh scroll, when it's opened up, kicks off a blasting of seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet then kicks off the pouring out of seven bowls. These judgments that are described occur during a, a seven-year period on the earth known as the Great Tribulation. And especially in that Great Tribulation, what is really tough on the earth is the last half of it. 
What I'm reading to you in Revelation chapter 11 picks up right before the final trumpet is blown, which is at the end of chapter 11. So the seven scrolls of judgment have been opened up and horrible judgments have been poured out on the earth. And six of the trumpets have been blasted and more judgments are poured out on the earth. And after the sixth of these trumpets is blown, before you get the story, and it's not necessarily to suggest a hard chronology, but the book of Revelation is written like this. There, will be, there are texts that are written about these judgments, and then he'll stop and write about something else. Then more judgments, then he'll stop and write about something else. One of these pauses that he takes right before the blasting of the seventh trumpet is this account. I might as well read from verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, which is three and a half years in the, in the understanding of that. I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days, which is also half of the seven-year period, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth, right? Which many theologians equate to what Peter, James, and John saw when they saw Elijah and Moses standing there. Remember, what Moses and Elijah, or what, what Peter, James, and John were getting was a glimpse, a vision of the Son of Man's coming. So right before his coming, which these days that are being described here are right before his coming. These are the last few months and years right before Jesus comes again. Right? And there's going to be these two witnesses. They're going to be on the earth and they're going to preach. And verse 5 says, If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, which, by the way, happened earlier in Elijah's life. If you know the story of Elijah... The book of James tells us that Elijah prayed and it did not rain for guess how long? Three and a half years. Ooh, interesting. Coincidence? And they have power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues. Whose life did that happen in? <laughs> yeah, right? Okay. As often as they desire. And now listen to this. When they, now, they're not named. But I want to say to you that many good, solid preachers, theologians, associate this with Moses and Elijah, including me. And I want to read to you something. I'm going to absolutely, it's not going to be plagiarism because I'm going to tell you that John MacArthur wrote it. And I know a lot of you have the MacArthur Study Bible, so you can read it along with me if you want. But the study note on this if you want to read, I'm just going to read you what the brother said because, you ready? Listen to this. Listen carefully. 
While it is impossible to be dogmatic about the identity of these two witnesses, several observations suggest they might be Moses and Elijah. Ready? This is Pastor MacArthur's writing. Man way smarter than your pastor. A man who has taught your pastor a lot. Number one, like Moses, they strike the earth with plagues, and like Elijah, they have the power to keep it from raining. That we did mention already. Number two, Jewish tradition expected both Moses and Elijah to return in the future. We we talked about that, actually. Number three, both Moses and Elijah were present at the transfiguration, a preview of Christ's second coming. Actually, I'm feeling pretty good as I read this because I actually did realize those things for you independently. Number four, both Moses and Elijah used supernatural means to provoke repentance. Number five, this is fascinating, Elijah was taken up alive into heaven and God buried Moses' body where it would never be found. And number six, the length of the drought brought uh, these two witnesses bring is the same as that brought by Elijah. Right? So this is fascinating. Look at verse 7. When they finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So they're going to die. Right? They're going to come. They're going to preach. They're going to have power to, like, bring plagues. They're going to have power to bring droughts. They're going to preach. People are going to hate them. God's going to give them power for fire to come out of their mouths and strike their opponents dead. But then the time's going to come when God's going to allow for them to be killed. And look at verse 8. To show you what the state of the world is going to be like during the future great tribulation on the earth, even though the earth will have received and experienced things that are going to kill like swaths of the population, like things will happen that will cause a third of the world to die, a third of the vegetation to be burned up. Even so, men will not humble themselves and repent and turn to God. Even when these two witnesses with the ability to perform miraculous deeds who so seem to fit the description of Moses and Elijah... They still will not, the world, humble themselves and repent. And when they kill them, verse 8 says, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, which is a derogatory reference to Jerusalem. They're going to be killed in Jerusalem, and they're just going to leave their bodies laying in the street. You think that's bad? Where also our Lord was crucified, which identifies it as Jerusalem. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations, look at this, will see their dead bodies for three and a half days and not allow them to be put into graves. And the, so they won't even allow them to be buried. Look, even though, even though all this hardship is going on on the... I used to think this was far-fetched when I was a younger believer. I used to think it was far-fetched because there was no way with all of the rough stuff that would be going on in the world that people wouldn't like humble themselves when they were being preached to about God. I don't think so anymore. I actually think now that just about anything that could happen in the world, if you come in and try to preach about the Lord and try to preach preach about Jesus, so many people will turn around and even violently fight against you. 
and say things like, how could you tell me about God with all of this stuff that's going on? And they won't make the connection right, which is tragic and it's sad. But listen, you and I live and serve God in a day and an age where his grace is open to those who will repent and believe. And it's why you need to take opportunity. You need to take advantage of the open door and the opportunity you have in your life right now before these things start to go down. And tell them and invite them. Are you content to just... You understand the stuff I'm reading to you is not fantasy or science fiction. This is stuff that God says is going to happen. I know you're sitting there and you're thinking, Moses and Elijah are going to come back. Uh, They're not named here in this text, but there's a lot of evidence that would incline, that would make you inclined to think that it's them. Can you imagine that? Moses and Elijah walking in Jerusalem again and being killed in Jerusalem and having their bodies just lay there. And And then verse 10 says, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to each other. Like we send gifts to each other at Christmas time, right? When these, when these guys are killed, people are going to celebrate. Yay! What, what, what size shoes do you wear? I'd like, I'd like to get you something. What flavors of coffee do you like? You know, here's the big Lexus with the big red bow on top. Those two guys are dead. That's what it's going to be like. Because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, look at this. The breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Don't you know it? And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, get up here. Well, no, not get up here. Come up here. Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Jesus says, Elijah's coming. When Jesus, here, listen to me. When Jesus acknowledged that Elijah, as the King James Version says, truly shall first come. When Jesus said that, that should make your head as a Christian, it should make your mind, your thinking, your understanding turn to this. This is what's coming. And you know what? If we're off on the identity of these two witnesses, and it's just like an amazing coincidence that they're described the way that they are. So what? It's still going to happen. And Elijah is going to come first before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Do you realize you're living in a world that's temporary? Do you realize that the existence that you are in right now is not a permanent one. Do you realize that the Bible describes the earth itself as being burned up with fervent heat and all the elements being melted? Do you understand that? 
Do you realize that here and now is temporary, temporary, temporary? What have I been saying to you the last few years? One of the problems Christians have is they treat this life with more importance than the Bible does. And another problem we have is we don't give the future eternal life the importance that the Bible does. We read the Bible, we say yes, we say amen, but then we live practically as if we don't believe that. What Christians are called to do is understand. You have Jesus saying, he's answering the, you're the Messiah, great, but why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? Well, listen, you make no mistake, he is coming first. Messiah is going to come again one day, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And before that happens, Elijah comes. But, and I close with this, turn to Luke chapter 1. What was the second thing that he said? I'm sorry if I feel like, if you feel like I'm all over the place a little bit with this. But I just, I I really don't care. I I just, I just want it to come through. I want you to understand what's coming. I want you to be aware what's coming. I don't really care if you think I preach well or I speak well or you think I'm smart or you think I'm dumb. I really, it really doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that you're aware of what's going on here. And it's not about my skill or lack of it. It's about your faith. It's about your belief. It's about your understanding. And it's about what you do with that. Right? You understand what's coming. And so you humble yourself and you turn to God. And you devote your existence to Him. You devote your heart to Him. You devote your days to Him. Jesus had said, Elijah is coming first, but I say to you that Elijah has come already. How can he say that? Well, our friend Gabriel, who we made reference to before, and Christmas is coming. You get to hear when Gabriel talks to Mary and talks to Joseph. But Gabriel talked to Zacharias too. And in Luke chapter 1, in verse 5, It says, there was in the days of Herod, a king, the king of Judea, Judah, Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, his wife, and I, that's an interesting thing in and of itself, I don't have time to break it down. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, Right? But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. That sounds like God was setting them up for something, right? Because we've read that story before, right? So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. There was an incense altar inside the temple of the Lord, outside the Holy of Holies. He goes into this part of the temple, it was his turn to go and to refresh or burn, whatever, however the procedure was with the incense. And so it was a perpetual 
I'm not going to go into explaining what it all meant right now, but it was his job to go and do this. So the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord, this is Gabriel, uh, appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Not what Zacharias accepted, uh, expected that day, right? He goes inside the temple and there's Gabriel, the angel, standing there. What a, by the way, this I have to stick in here. What other very important time relevant to end time prophecy did Gabriel appear? We know he appeared to Zacharias. We know he appeared to Mary and to Joseph. There's one other time, very important, famous time that he appeared. Who said it? Begins with a D. Daniel. Remember that? Listen, the, the, the Bible, Gabriel's got an important little place in the Bible because when Daniel, when Daniel realized that the 70 years of Jeremiah's prophecy had expired and turned to the Lord to pray, after he was done praying, Gabriel, the angel, the same one that appears here, the, back all the way back in Daniel's day, Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, as soon as you started praying, God sent me to you. And then he gave him the word concerning the entire future of Israel, including prophecy concerning that seven-year great tribulation period that we just read about in the book of Revelation. Yeah. Interesting little bit of hooking up your Bible there for you. Anyway, um, so we're told in verse 11, the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you're going to call his name John. That's John the Baptist, right? And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink and he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now listen to this. And he will turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then he quotes from Malachi. Gabriel quotes from Malachi and says, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He identifies himself as Gabriel over in verse 19. But you see what's happening here? So when Jesus says, Elijah's coming, but he's come, what he's referring to is that John the Baptist came not literally Elijah, but in the spirit and power of Elijah, fulfilling the same things that Elijah, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, will fulfill. He came and he preached. And what did John the Baptist preach? Repent! Make way, make straight the paths of the Lord. Every hill will be brought little. Every valley will be raised up. Listen, the Lord is coming. And that was his job. And that's what he did. He preached. So what we would say is this. John the Baptist is a type of Elijah. But there is still this actual Elijah is to come. Christians, we need to wake up and realize that this isn't hocus pocus. It's not fantasy. There are things, incredible things, that the Bible says have not happened yet that are still coming. And this is one of them. So the scribes, so Jesus is asked, 
Why did the scribes say Elijah come first? Well, because Malachi said so. And then Jesus says, indeed, he is coming first. And I think you can look at Revelation 11 and see that that is still coming and is going to come. But John the Baptist was like a type of that. And he came and he filled that Elijah role in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare people for the Messiah. Just like John the Baptist prepared for the first coming of the Messiah, so there is still the Elijah to come who will prepare the world for the second coming of the Messiah. Look where you're sitting. Look where we're at. What should we be doing with our days? What should we be doing with our mouths and our exertions and our plans? What should we be doing? Making ourselves ready. Keeping ourselves ready. Being the hands and feet and mouths of God making this world ready. We should be sharing the gospel with people. We should be loving each other. We should be praying for each other. We should be encouraging each other to be spiritual, to be faithful, to pray. We should be in fellowship. We should be serving, wholly devoted to the one who is yet going to come. Jed and Amy, come on back up and let's sing our last hymn together today. Let's all, thanks for listening to that today. I know it seemed a little all over the place, but I'm not worried about that. What's important to me is that you understand what's coming and that you understand that there are important things from God's Word. Listen, everyone, listen. Listen, listen, listen. We're, gonna, we're, still, we're still in worship. We're going to sing a hymn and we're going to worship. We're going to worship the one who's going to actually come and stand here on the earth.